How are we doing? Doing good this weekend? Good. My name is Sean Wood. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it is great to see you this weekend. We are continuing in our series called Outward Bound, and we've been taking the last three weekends now to look at the book of Titus. And we will be uh, looking at the chapter three, the last chapter of the book of Titus this weekend as we end this series, um, Outward Bound. And so if you have your Bibles or you can follow along in your note sheets, um, you can do that. And we'll be looking at the entire chapter as we kind of delve in together this weekend. So, um, it wasn't too long ago that I was loading up my children and uh, into the uh, car, and it was a Friday, so it was Daddy Day, and I kind of spend the day with them on, on Fridays. It's our day off here at Seacoast, and so I spend the day with them, and I've got uh, the kids getting loaded up, and I've got Hayes. He's 18 months now, but he was a little tiny baby at that time, and so I kind of got him buckled in and everything, and then Isabel, she's four years old. She, she's kind of getting to that phase where she can buckle herself in, but it's kind of a chore if, if you, it's to be easier if I could just do it, you know, parents, you know what I mean, is because she kind of dances a little bit and then she, she moves around and then she finally gets in the seat and then, so I finally get her buckled in. And then as soon as I buckle her in, she, it's n- always, I've got to go potty now. And so then you got to unbuckle and you take back inside, then you do the whole process over again. So finally I get her all buckled in, get him buckled in, we're ready to roll. And I'm, I'm riding down the, the road in our car and I get rebuked by a four-year-old. How many of you have ever been rebuked by your children? You ever had that? And so I'm riding down the road and I hear, Daddy, why don't you have to wear your seatbelt? Is what I hear. If you ever had that experience, it's, it's great. And because there's no good answer really, except to just repent and say I should. And so I did. I, I put the seatbelt on, and I, I've got a really bad habit of not wearing my seatbelt. It's not because I believe it's safe or anything. It's just because I forget, and, and I need to be reminded to do that. And sometimes the four-year-old will, will remind me to do that. But I, I don't need her as much anymore to remind me because we got a new-to-us van recently. We are straight up swagger wagon now, uh, family. And so we got a new to us minivan. And, and here's the blessing of this new minivan is if you don't put your seatbelt on, as soon as you hit five miles per hour, you get to experience what I can only imagine it took years and years of engineering uh, work to figure out the pitch that needs to be there to make a noise, make your brain explode. You guys know what it's the it happens and it sends radioactive waves into your brain that just mess you up and so you immediately quickly put the seatbelt on and so every every time I get in the van I never forget because but I still unfortunately need to be reminded to do that we, we need a lot of reminders in our life don't we I mean we set uh, alarms to to remind us so that we'll remember to do things in fact I was talking to a friend this week who said that they sometimes set two alarm clocks on each side of the room so that if it's a really important appointment that they need to get up for so that they, you know, in their sleep, turn the one off, at least the other one to go off in five minutes. And you've got reminders on your phone. You've got reminders on your refrigerator of appointments that are coming up. You've got sticky notes everywhere. We remind ourselves of all kinds of things because we, we simply forget, don't we? Well, this weekend in chapter three of Titus, Paul is giving us some missional reminders He's just giving us some reminders of what's going on in our lives and what we need to remember. And we, because we forget spiritually too. You know, not only do we need reminders for our lives just to to remember to wake up in the morning, but we need reminders spiritually. I, I don't know about you guys, but I am spiritually ADD. 
I mean, I, I am amazed at how God will teach me something. He'll convict me about something. I'll start to live that out in my life and get new habits and, and, and new uh, stuff in my heart. And then I'll find myself back into the cycle again in the same spot. And so I'll be praying again and repenting again. And I'll think, oh, I've learned something new to when God reminds me that, no, we've, we've been through this before and you have spiritual ADD. You just keep forgetting because we get distracted we get distracted in our lives. We get distracted in our spiritual lives. And Paul knew this as he was writing to Timothy. He was writing or in, uh, to Titus, rather, that he needed to remind us of some things. So jump right in. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, remind them. Paul starts out with a command to Titus to remind them. And the verb here actually uh, means to continually remind in fact, what it means here is that Paul may have already talked to the church at Crete about this, and he may be telling Tim, uh, Titus to remind them again. And, and then the verb action is just to remind over and over and over again, just like that noise in my van, just to kind of over and over again remind until we get it straight in our lives, these things that Paul is reminding us about. So, so what do we need to remember? What do we need to remember? It's in chapter 3, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. The first thing we need to remember is remember who we are. Remember who we are. Through this whole series, we've been looking at the fact that we are missional and incarnational people. In other words, in chapter 1, we saw that we're missional. We are on a mission from God. He's given us this mission for our lives, and we are to be about that mission. And then in chapter 2, we saw that we are incarnational, that we are to live life on life with people, that we are to be Jesus' hands and feet in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families, that we are to live an incarnational and missional lifestyle. In fact, those are two words that for us as seacoasters that we really need to learn. Because God has called us as a church to be missional and incarnational people. And you're going to hear it over and over again. In fact, we're going to remind ourselves and we're going to remind you as a church over and over again about being missional and incarnational. And then he, he tells us in the remainder of these first two verses how we'll do that. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, all the authorities in your life, coaches, teachers, people in your lives that are authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He talks about good works, not being evil, not arguing, being gentle, and then showing perfect courtesy toward all people. That last phrase there, perfect courtesy, is really talking about this kind of proper uh, incarnational living. It's talking about a meekness in our lives. And really what Paul is saying is, hey guys, be nice. I mean, just be nice to one another. And isn't it amazing that in this society he had to sit down and to, to this church and say, hey, be gentle, be, be meek, be nice. The word there for meekness is actually the same one that's used and, and translated for the fruit of the Spirit as well. And oftentimes, what, what I think of when I think of meekness, I don't know about you guys, but I immediately think of weakness. Maybe it's because it's so close that the words are, but I just think of weakness with people who get run over by anyone. And I'm kind of a high type A, type D personality anyway. So I just, you know, I shun meekness and weakness. And what it really means, though, in this word here is freedom 
from pride and arrogance, a modest estimation of our own worth. It's freedom from pride. You know what pride is? Pride is when we believe that we are extraordinary and that everyone else is just ordinary and common. And so we we elevate ourselves over everyone else in every situation. And and as people, that that is our natural bent. I mean, that is just who we naturally are to think we are the most important. And what Paul is saying is, think of yourselves as lower than, than you do and think of everyone else as uncommon and as extraordinary. And, and he says, just be humble, be kind and, and add this to your lives. You know, and we talk about, isn't it sad that, that in the society you had to sit down and tell this church to be nice. But I think about our society. I mean, we really don't honor other people very well. And we're really not nice. In fact, recently I saw this news report of um, one of those hidden camera deals. And they had this hidden camera and it showed this woman on this news report. They kind of staged it. And she had this kind of this stroller full of groceries and packed with bags and stuff. And she had one small infant on her hip and maybe a grocery bag on the other hip. And then another child inside of the stroller. And she's trying to get it loaded into her minivan and she's trying to get stuff. And so she drops a bag and they showed on this, this hidden camera. They had shown where there were groups of people around. And you'd watch the groups of people. Here's what they'd do. They would, they would kind of see it, and then you'd see them quickly look away, and they'd turn their back. Or, or they'd get their phone, and they would act like there was angst, and they didn't know what to do. I've, I've got this important phone call, but then there's this lady, and then eventually they'd walk away. And they'd find all these unique and creative reasons not to just simply be nice. And I thought, isn't it amazing? In, in this world, we will work really hard sometimes, and I'm a chief sinner of this, at just avoiding having to be nice. I have an experience where just being nice uh, really has changed something. I, I have the um, unfortunate uh, blessing to be able to, to go contribute blood every six months because I have high cholesterol. And, and the good news is, is I hate needles and the sight of blood. So that, that makes it just a fun, fun experience for me. And so I go to this lab, but the thing is, this lab that I go to, every time I go, I kind of peek in to see if she's there. Because if she's there, it's going to be a great experience. And I look in, I'm like, yes, she's there. And here's what happens. As soon as I walk in the door, there's this lady who I just love. And she reminds me of my grandmother a little bit because she's about my grandmother's age, I think. And she um, has this thick Charlestonian draw. You know, she's just got this draw. And when I walk in, here's what she does. She goes, hey, baby. She always says that to me. I'm her baby. And just for that moment, I'm back. This is my grandmother. I'm her baby. I'm walking over. I'm like, hey. She's like, come here, baby. And then she always says this. I love it. Come over here, baby, and let's get you stuck so you can go get you a biscuit. So she always says. Because she knows. If you've given blood, you know you got to fast and you can't eat anything. And so she's like, let's get you stuck. And then she always laughs and she talks to me. She's always nice. She asks me about my kids and she talks to me. And she, the whole time she's just making me laugh and cutting up. And, and you know, I'm, she's like, she always asks, which arm do you want me to stick? She doesn't just stick it in there and like, you know, whoa, where'd that come from? She's real gentle and she's, she's meek. And then she, she does that. And I, sometimes, honestly, I don't even realize she's taking the blood. I'm like, oh, we're done and then she puts the deal on and she sends me off my way and and i always think oh i can't wait to go back because i'm her baby just for this one little moment in life but you know it's a simple thing i thought about her and i thought you know what 
Her job, it's not the funnest job in the whole wide world. I mean, she gets to stick people with needles all day long. And I thought she could be miserable. She could be miserable, but instead she chooses to be kind. She chooses to be funny. She chooses to make it a blessing. I thought there, there are parts of me that I need to take advice from this woman. Is that I need to be meek and be kind and remind my face sometimes that I've been saved. You know, I mean, my, my insides feel it, but sometimes I need to just tell my face that, that they can show that I'm happy and, and that I'm enjoying life. And that's what Paul is saying. Is he's saying, just, just be nice. And this isn't a program. You know, programs are not bad to do good works and good deeds through. And we have a lot of them where you can do good stuff. But this is a missional lifestyle. This is something that you wake up in the morning and you decide to be a different person than what you naturally want to be. See, Paul says to treat everyone as uncommon and extraordinary. We remember who we are. That's the type of people that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a people that are marked by this attitude that that Jesus talked about. He said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So the, the way you, you carry on life, the way you treat one another, the way you look out for one another and as neighbors and as, as, as in the same community, the way you look out for each other and within the church and then just people in your community that you know, the way you treat them, that's how they'll know that you're my disciple. He says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. The first, second thing is, remember who we were. Remember who we were. Look at verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul gives us just a reminder of who we were, because we often forget who we were. In fact, we forget so much that we begin to think more highly of ourselves. We, we don't do what it was talking about in this previous verse that we just covered. I have a confession to make. I sometimes just sit in front of the TV and flip through the channels. I don't think any other men do that, but I just, I just like to do that. I just flip through the channels. It's just hypnotic and, and kind of just helps kind of soothe my soul. And so I'll do that. And then every now and then, if I've stayed up way too late, I'll stumble across this show that is a horrible, horrible show. But it just sucks me in every time. And it's called TMZ. You guys, you ever, ever seen TMZ? Oh, we know it's the heathen crowd because they've all seen TMZ. And so TMZ is the worst show because what it does is it's paparazzi basically following around the rich and the famous and showing us the debauchery and the horrible decisions that they make. And we get just captivated by the stars and we watch their lives and we, we, we just love to see it. It's kind of the TV equivalent of Us magazine or People magazine, you know, and we're just watching what's the latest divorce, what's the latest deal going on. And here's why we do that. Because we begin to think more highly of ourselves. For me, and it's just because I'm worse than you guys. But for me, if I watch it, if I just feel for just a moment like a lousy citizen, all I have to do is watch TMZ and see Lindsay Lohan for just a moment. <laughs> for just a moment. 
And, and then if I'm starting to really feel convicted sometimes that I, I need to be a better husband, I need to, to be more caring for my wife, and that my speech needs to be just more life-giving to her and my family, and, and God and the Holy Spirit begins to convict me, all I need is a good dose of TMZ to see Mel Gibson and to hear his latest rant. And, and all of a sudden, I feel like the best husband who's ever lived. I'm like, man, I'm a, I'm a good husband. Then if I watch it long enough, I'll start to think about you guys. And, and I'll think in a good way, in a good way, because I'll think, man, all of us good people, we're stuck on this universe with these horrible, horrible people. And I start to feel sorry for us a little bit of like, can you believe we have to be here? And what that is, is pride that's welling up, that forgets who I used to be because we as Christ followers have the curse of knowledge because we know too much. We know too much of God's goodness and his greatness. We know too much of how he has he's changed us and saved us. We know too much. And we begin to see this and we have this curse of knowledge in our lives. And it, and it reminds me sometimes we are like um, the insurance person that I have to call for my health insurance. I am I'm so grateful for Seacoast that they give us my family health insurance and it's a part of what we get and so grateful for that we have it and then this society and this economy and everything it's unbelievable but i just have to i have to tell you it is so frustrating to try and fill out paperwork for health insurance um it, i called the 1-800 number it was some lady it was not someone who works here in a local area it was far away and i called her trying to figure out what to do because i'd gotten an email saying hey you haven't done the right things to for your health insurance and so i called and said hey it says I haven't done the right things. What have I not done? And she basically said, well, you haven't done the right things. And I said, okay, well, that was helpful. What are the right things? She said, well, you need to log in on the website. I said, what website? And she said, oh, this website. And she gave me this obscure website that I, and I don't think I'd ever heard of. She said, well, I said, well, how do I log in? And she said, oh, well, you have to log in with your username and password. I said, well, what would my username and password be? Oh, I don't know. I said, well, can you tell me what it is? No. How, how did I create it? Well, it's like your name and a derivative of your last name in Greek divided by three with, with this. And I was like, how would I have known that? She said, well, you created it. We, we've actually tapped into you when you were sleeping one night. And that's how you got your password is that you have this password that only you know. I said, well, did I create it? She said, no, we chose it for you randomly, but you know it. I said, but I don't know it. How would I get it? She said, well, I don't, we're not allowed to have those things in our computer. Only you know it. I said, but I don't know it. And she said, well, you can't reset it because you'd have to have your password to be able to reset it. And I said, oh, so I'm stuck. I said, okay, well, let's, so we finally got around that and we did something math or something to get around it. And then, so we finally got there and she said, okay, well, you need to fill out form 432-87B, not A, but B. And you need to fill that out in the blue pen and, and while you're standing on one foot. And then while you fax it to a secret number that's on the website. And I said, well, what website? She said, oh, the website you can't log into. I said, well, do you have that fax number? Oh, no, it's special for your plan, so you have to get it from your website. Well, how would I get it? Well, you have to fly to Crete and in Crete... <laughs> There's this cave that you can go to and you dig and you find this old parchment. And on that parchment, and it, it's just this whole deal. You've been there before. And here's the deal. Really, I make fun of it. But here's the All I really had to do was fill out this form. But I didn't know what form. But she did because she fills the form out all day long for people and helps them with it. She's, she's getting frustrated with me because I'm going, but how would I fill that form out? And the deal is she had the curse of knowledge because she knows. And here's what we do. As Christ follows, and, and I know I do, I forget 
I just simply forget of who I was. I forget of how dark my soul was. I forget that, that I'm just like the people that now are them. You know, I, I forget that as I look at the people on TV or going through a hard time in our community or in this church, and I'm so quick to go, oh, look at them if they only, if they only knew. The problem is I have the curse of knowledge because I know, and I don't remember when I didn't know. And so I, I get quickly caught up in that. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this because we lose our compassion for people. He says that eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. You see, in the Bible, it talks a lot about that there is no condemnation. But for some reason, Paul chooses to have us to remember who we were. And as I begin to think back, when, when is the last time that you reflected and you remember, remembered who you were? And that God saved you, a miserable sinner. See, when I think on those thoughts, I think back to a 16 or 17 year old that I was that, that didn't know God. That knew all the right answers. That had been raised in a family that had the right values. But that there was very dark places and there was no viable life in my spiritual walk. I didn't know God at all. And I remember, and it makes me think back to the song that maybe many of you knew, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And see, as I take the posture to remember who I was and to remember from where God saved me, I also remember that I was in the same place as many of the people that I now see as them. And Paul says, when you have that, when you can remember that, it will change your life when it comes to being missional. Because now these aren't just people that are struggling with something you've never been a part of, but they're you just several years removed, several months removed, maybe even just several weeks removed. He says, remember who you were. There's no condemnation in it, but remember it so that you will have compassion for those that we serve. And then the third thing Paul says that we need to remember is that we need to remember who saved us. Four through seven it is a passage is a, is a passage of scripture that goes together these these couple of verses we're going to look at them piece by piece but they are they're together a, another a third presentation of the gospel by Paul in the book of Titus it says in verse 4 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared I love this phrase, the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior. That phrase in, in the original language literally means the philanthropy of God. You know, philanthropy is when you give a donation to humankind to make humankind better through a charitable donation. And, and what this word means is this is God's philanthropy, the, the loving kindness of God. When he gave a charitable donation, he gave Jesus, his son, to die for us. And we see that we are in this community of God's people through his generous love. And then continuing in verse 5, it says, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness. He's talking about our works again. But he says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. Paul wants to make sure that there is a clear distinction between the good works of God and the good works of men. He's saying the good work of God was that he died on a cross. His, his good works, his philanthropy, his donation of Jesus was what saved you. The good works of men, of, of our deeds, are a response to that. It's not what saves us. There's no righteousness in it whatsoever. We don't have an inkling of righteousness in us. We are wretched people. But that God in his philanthropy gave Jesus so that we could then respond through the graciousness and obedience with our acts. And then it says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 5, read a little more literally, might would mean through the washing of new birth and the remaking of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the washing of new birth, Jesus died so that those sins, the people that we were, could be washed away completely. He took care of all that in his righteousness so that we could be filled with the Holy Spirit and regeneration or remaking could happen so the Holy Spirit could remake us from within. That is why, as Christ followers, there should be viable signs that we are following after Jesus. If you do not have any signs of life, in your world, in your life, then, then, then I would question to make sure that you have had an experience where you have allowed God through Jesus to save you. Because he's saying that they are, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and it remakes us into a new creation and a new person. It has nothing to do with our righteousness or our works, he says. But our works and our righteousness have to do with a response to what God is doing. Why? In verse 7 he says this, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says heirs in this, in this passage means that we are to receive the promise of God. We are heirs to the promise of God of eternal life. He says that God washes us, he cleanses us to do good works through our, his righteousness so that we can become heirs to the promise of God of eternal life. And this is when we are allowed to leave the prison that we've created of our own sin and instead become heirs to his promise that he's given us. See, God is faithful and he is just, it says, to give us what he promised us. And I love this, this next in, in verse 8. 4 through 7 are kind of this little chunk together. And then in verse 8 it says, The saying is trustworthy. Whenever it says the saying is trustworthy in the Bible, it, we did a little research and we found that what this means is that this was probably a creed or, or a hymn. And so they had taken 4 through 7 and in early Christendom, they had made this into something that they had kind of memorized. Sort of the Nicene Creed that maybe that you have learned if you grew up in church, which is, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, I believe in the virgin birth. It's a creed that, that we learn that is essential stuff. It is the stuff that we need to know. It's the important stuff. And when he says that this saying is trustworthy, he's saying, hey, this is something important. This is something that's known by Christians all over the world that you need to know. And then he continues, and I want you to insist on these things. Put preeminence to these things, Paul says. These are the most important things so that 
those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He goes back again and says, here's why. Here's why we need to understand this. So that you'll be wired up in such a way that the Holy Spirit is remaking you so you'll be ready to do good works. Here's why we did all this, so that you can be ready. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. See, Paul says to Titus, this is the cornerstone. Four through seven is the cornerstone of the message of the gospel. And he says a proper focus on the gospel leads to a proper focus on good works. How many of you have ever heard of Babe Ruth? Not the candy bar, but the, the baseball player. Heard of Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth, a really important baseball player, really uh, famous guy. And he was the first to hit 500 home runs. And when he hit his 500th home run, they autographed seven bats from that famous um, uh, hitting of those home runs. And, and for, the, for decades, no one could find the first bat that he had autographed. And it had lost for decades. And what had happened was his agent had given away the bat at a home run competition. So there was a home run contest, and his agent gave away the bat to the winner, the player that was the winner. And it's just a great prize. And that man held on to that bat for years and years and years for decades. And then he, he lived a very old age. And as he lived to that old age, he, all of his family and friends and everyone had died around him. But there was still this nurse that had taken care of him for many, many years and been his private nurse. And so upon his will and upon his death in his will, he left that bat, that first bat signed by Babe Ruth to this nurse. And she didn't really know what it was, didn't know that it was a big deal in any way. But it was special to her because he had given it to her and she loved him very much. And so... She um, held it under her bed. She kept it under her bed for 20 years. I guess if someone broke in, they would have gotten hit, hit by, the, by the babe over the head. And so she had it under her bed for 20 years. And for 20 years, it was just there. But this nurse, she wasn't only a nurse, but she had a dream. And her dream was to open up this cafe. And so later in her life, she decided, you know what, I'm going to go after my dream. I want to open up this little cafe and spend the rest of my life running this little cafe. So she began to gather everything that she had, all of her possessions, anything she owned, to see if there was anything of value. And began taking it to places and selling it and, and, and selling them in garage sales just to raise money. And she took this bat to a sports memorabilia place to see if there was any worth to it. Maybe it was worth a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks. So she took it there and, and the guy looked at it and he said, wow, this is real. This is a big deal. And so he helped her, and they went to Sotheby's, and they did an auction, and they auctioned this off. And, and in 2006, that first bat was auctioned off for $1.3 million. Been under her bed for 20 years. This is a good little savings plan. So <laughs> she opened up her little cafe, and then she had quite a significant amount of money left over, and she used that to start a foundation for disadvantaged children. And a reporter came up to her, and he's a little bewildered about why she would have done that. And he said, why did you choose to give such a significant portion of this money to a start this foundation? And disadvantaged children had been something that was close to Babe Ruth's heart at the end of his life. And she said this. She said, the bat was only valuable because Babe Ruth's name is on it. So the only reasonable thing I can do is to invest it in something that honored him. I thought about that for us as Christ followers. We've learned what Jesus did. 
through 4 through 7, we learned that God gave His Son as a charitable donation who died for us. Our only reasonable response would be that we would do something that would honor Him with our lives. See, He signed our lives. He paid for it in full. And now we have an opportunity to honor Him back. What will we spend our lives on? Will it be on us and take for granted the high price that Jesus has paid? Or will we be able to say we honored him through the outflowing of our hearts in good works. As we study history, the early Christians did just that. They were unstoppable when it came to helping others. They didn't just spread their faith and, and, and then go help others but uh, through the word or through preaching the word, but they helped everyone. They helped their enemies. They helped their friends. They helped each other. They served one another. They were known for their service to one another. And because of that, Christianity spread like wildfire because people said, I want to be a part of that. You see, they were on mission from God. They were incarnational, being Jesus' hands and feet. And I've seen right in front of me an example of this in my wife, Connie. She was, uh, as a 17-year-old, very far from God, very, very far from God. And she was radically saved and her whole life changed at 17. She went from darkness to, to light. And she changed everything about her lifestyle, about her. And because of that, she always had this really soft spot in her heart for teenagers. And we've worked in several different churches while I was going to seminary and, 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 just, and in learning and ministry and traveling and different things. And always, Connie has found her place in youth ministry. And I watched her. She would clean our little 600-square-foot apartment. It doesn't take very long. That's good. But 600-square-foot apartment to have 15 kids come over and all cram into it. And we would feed them anything that we could. And our, our house would be a wreck when they would leave. And they would eat everything that we had. And, and, and they were disrespectful sometimes. And they, they, they didn't accept her love sometimes. They rejected it. And, but then I would hear her in late-night conversations with them walking through problems in their life, crying with them, praying with them. And, and then I, I, we would get calls at 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning from students who had found themselves in, in making a bad choice and found themselves in a place where they needed help. And they would call Connie and say, hey, can you, can you come pick me up? Can you get me out of this situation? And we would go and we'd, we'd pick them up and get them out of the situation. It was not convenient a lot of the times. It, it was messy. It, it was very fruitful, though. As she saw this in her life, and I saw her pouring in this missional lifestyle. It wasn't a program. She never was asking the church to invent a program. It was just always something that she would, would invest her life in. And then, as we got older, we, we kind of started having our own little crumb crunchers around the house. And so it got harder and harder as we had children for her to invest in teenagers the way that she wanted to because she's an all or nothing type of person. So she said, I just can't can't do that. And for a while, I saw it kind of grieved her heart. But then I saw that this missional incarnational thing in her just, just changed directions. And she began to say, you know what? I can make a difference with, with moms. I can be a mom who can encourage other moms and try to be there for other moms. So now we, we clean our house and we host small groups full of parents that we love and adore because they have children our age and we pour into their hearts as much as we can and they pour back into us. And, and then we host these parenting classes that Seacoast offers and we try to do our best to just say, here's what we've learned along the way and here's some great wisdom from people who have learned much more. But we invest in that. And then I see her on Facebook having late night conversations with moms who 
who are discouraged or just don't know what to do next. And then we get calls at sometimes 11, 12 a.m. We don't do 2, 3, and 4 anymore, but 11 or 12 a.m. of, of, of uh, moms going, hey, I don't know what to do. He's crying and I don't know what to do. And I hear on the phone being so gracious and so so kind and so meek. And I said to myself, this is missional and incarnational. See, this is a natural outflowing of her life. And as I see this, I have to ask myself, and I would ask you this weekend, what is the natural outflow of your heart producing? When you realize the proper view of the gospel that Jesus saved you, is there a proper view of good works and that you go, this is the only reasonable thing I could do with my life. I know it would be a lot more fun to just invest in me, but I'm going to invest in others because it's the only reasonable thing I can do. That's a missional and incarnational lifestyle. Then the fourth thing is that we remember what is worth fighting for. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Once you have this proper view of the gospel and a proper view of works, good works, we have to guard that perspective by avoiding arguments over the non-essentials. Paul says to Titus, remind your people what is worth fighting over. Don't fight over moronic stuff. The word there for foolish in this verse 9 is moros, and it means moronic. It's where we get our word moronic from, or moron. And he says, don't fight over moronic stuff. You remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh did a great message where he talked about non-essentials versus the essentials. These are the non-essentials. We're not going to argue over these. These, though, are the essentials. And what Paul would say is, over the essentials, guard your essentials. Fight over your essentials. Be willing to die, as many of these men who wrote the Bible were, over the essentials. But the other stuff is, is useless, and it's worthless, and it's unprofitable. It's not worth arguing over, Paul says. And then he tells us what to do with people in the church who do want to argue over that. Verse 10, it says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That's pretty harsh words by Paul. You remember earlier in Titus 1 and 2, he talked about false teachers and how we should avoid them and gives us a warning. But most likely here, he's not talking about people from the outside of the church, false teachers trying to come in. He's talking about people within the church, Christ followers, who just want to argue. They just kind of want to always pick a fight. I experienced this not too long ago. I'd spoken here at Seacoast and, and was walking off the stage and kind of got to the corner and a gentleman came up to me and he said, hey, I want to can I ask you a question? And I'm always willing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's talk because a lot of times God has moved in people's heart and I, and I, and I would love to, to have a conversation. And then he began to ask me some questions. And, and I could tell just real quickly that he wasn't asking any questions about what I'd spoken about. He wasn't asking any questions about his life or help or giving me encouragement or even he wasn't even really giving me any rebuke of, hey, you said this and that wasn't right or anything like that. I'm willing to even hear that. He just wanted to pick a fight. And there was just no possible way I was going to answer the right question. And so I just, I tried my best to answer him a couple times. I started to get frustrated. And then this quote went off in my head. It literally did. I remember this quote. It says, never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty and the pig kind of likes it. You you ever heard (laughs) And God, through the Holy Spirit, just gave me that quote. And, And I went, you know what? 
I just can't do this right now. I know you want to, but I just can't. And I, I kind of, honestly, kind of impolitely excused myself and walked away and just said, I can't do that. And what Paul is saying is don't be that person. Don't always in your small group go, hey, what can we fight about this week? Don't always look for the little thing in your, in your friend's life that you can pick out and go, hey, you, you know, you're, you, could, you could really improve on this. Stick to the essentials, four through seven, and, and be willing to die for those things. Sometimes we're not willing to die for those things, but we're willing to die over the non-essentials, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Paul says, don't be that guy. And he tells us, in fact, if, if you are, just don't, don't entertain it. What Paul's really saying there is, hey, if you warn him once and then twice, after that, just ignore him. Just, just ignore them. Just don't even, don't even entertain it. When they try to bring it up, just go, I'm going the other way. I'm just going to go the other way. That's why sometimes you just have to delete some of the emails that people keep sending you over and over and over again that say the same thing about people. And then here's how is what's kind of funny. Little statement. This whole, this whole chapter. What Paul's really saying is fight for good and don't be a moron. That's really what he's saying. He said, fight for good and then don't mess it up by being a moron. You can destroy this thing that is a church if you fight with another. So do good, do good, but don't be a moron. And then he ends it with this in 12 through 15. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Say it really fast and people think you know what you're saying. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And then look at verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be to you all. I love this. Paul is giving his final little closing of the book. He always does that in a letter. Says, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Here's who I'm sending to you. Grace be to you. And then like a mom who's standing in the driveway as her teenager is pulling out going, and buckle your seatbelt, drive safely, don't do anything dumb. You know, he's kind of giving that last warning right in the middle of that. He goes, and one more time, guys, learn to be nice. Just learn to be kind and don't, don't be unfruitful. And, and then he gives some real practical advice. Help those in urgent need. When you see someone in urgent need, help them. When, when you see somebody in your small group who says, you know what, I, I don't have the gas money to make it home tonight. Don't go, well, let's just pray for them. Bless them, God. You know, <laughs> take your wallet out and give them gas money. That's a practical meeting of an urgent need. Your prayers, God is going, I answered your prayer. It's in your wallet. Give them the money, okay? And so... When you see an urgent need, step in, meet it. When you're walking down the street, Paul's saying, and as the church, meet the needs of your community. Don't go, wow, they really should clean this neighborhood up. Why don't clean the neighborhood up? Wow, they really should do better than this. Well, do better than this, Paul is saying. Meet the urgent needs. Learn to devote themselves to good works. I love, I love the fact that he says learn. Because I can read this, and, and I'll be honest, I can quickly get defeated because I'm not naturally a nice person. I'm just, I'm, some of you go, you sure aren't. That's true. I, I really am not. I'm not a mean person. I'm just kind of not, I just kind of put my head down and, and walk and, and kind of in my own world and thinking thoughts in this brain that's way too much for me to handle. And I have to remind my face every now and then that, that life is good and that, that I need to smile. So I read this and I go, I need to learn. I've got to keep learning. And some of you say, I'm glad to hear that too, because I need to learn. 
to do good works. I need to learn to devote myself to good works and not be who I am naturally. See, we see here that good works, missional and incarnational lifestyle, are a natural result of a proper understanding of the gospel. So I would ask, is your life characterized by good works? And if it's not, there's a couple reasons why. One, maybe you didn't understand the gospel. Well, now you do. It's three times it's been presented in Titus and once right here in 4 through 7. You understand the gospel. Maybe you'd say that you didn't know what was expected of you as a Christ follower. But this whole series, Outward Bound, has talked about the fact that we are to be missional and incarnational people. And so now you do. And we all know together. And then the third thing is maybe you have not cared enough because you have forgotten what it was like. Maybe you've forgotten who saved you. Maybe you've forgotten what God did. And I would pray that we would all remember. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the unbelievable gift that you gave us in Jesus. That, God, you gave him to us as an offering freely to save us. And, God, nothing that we have done has saved us. And so, God, I pray for those now who would say, I didn't understand the gospel. I pray that, God, they would respond by now with an understanding of the gospel to respond to them and allow Jesus to save them. God, I pray that that would happen even this weekend. Father, I pray for those of us who have forgotten that you would, through your Holy Spirit, who continues to regenerate us, to remake us, that, God, you would remind us of who we were, that we're not to live that way any longer, and that we have a new way that we're to live. We're a new person that we're to be. But we're not supposed to forget those who still are there. Remind us, God, of those who are there. God, I pray that you would break our hearts, that we would weep over our own sins so that we would be ready to weep over the sins of others. And I pray you do that as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.